Welcome to the first season of Murder and 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder and 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. Adrian Levine was a born and raised New Yorker. Born in Queens in the mid-60s, she was raised in Long Island and attended high school in Jericho, where she made her acting debut in the stage production of Annie. After graduation, she enrolled in film production at Boston University, but dropped out after her junior year, moved to Manhattan, and began her film career as Adrienne Shelley. She had lost her dad when she was young, and in his memory, used his first name, Shelley. She acted in numerous off-Broadway plays, then in 1989 played the lead role in the independent film The Unbelievable Truth followed by the film Trust. She was a guest star on TV shows Law and Order, Homicide, and Life on the Street, among others. In 1991, she was named one of 12 promising new actors by Screen World, which collects data on everything to do with every film ever made. While still acting in the 90s, she turned her talents to writing and directing as well, and in 1999, wrote, directed, and acted in the movie I'll Take You There, featuring Ali Sheedy. In 2002, she married Andy Ostroy, and the couple lived in Lower Manhattan. A couple years later, while she was pregnant with her daughter Sophie, she wrote what would become her biggest film, Waitress, in which she directed and acted alongside its main character, played by Carrie Russell. Then in 2005, she appeared with Matt Dillon and Marissa Tomei in the movie Factotum. Adrian's last film, Waitress, had been selected for the upcoming Sundance Festival. The thing is, she didn't know it yet. Everything she had worked for all led up to this moment, a stepping stone to success, and it was about to happen. A mile and a half from their home, Adrian used a fourth-floor apartment in Abington Square's or office. It was on a tree-lined street in Greenwich Village, a piece of New York history, Boarding the Hudson River, the village stretches inward, its medium to tall brick buildings are steeped in a century of creativity. The neighborhood is home to off-Broadway theater, artists, writers, and musicians, icons that included Bob Dylan, Jimi Hendrix, and James Taylor. Her apartment, number 47, was in a six-story brick building, its two heavy-set wood entrance doors flanked by a large Gothic arch stoneway. In the fall of 2006, on the floor beneath her apartment, workers were renovating apartment number 37. 19-year-old Diego Pilco was a painter working on that apartment. The New York Post reported that he was a biochemistry student in his hometown of Guenca in Ecuador. But when he couldn't afford to stay in school, he made the decision to go to the United States. A year and a half earlier, he left his parents and four brothers and sisters and borrowed $13,000 to pay smugglers to take him to the United States. 
He flew to Mexico, then snuck across the border and made his way to Brooklyn. Diego had become an undocumented illegal immigrant. His older brother was 35 and had arrived in the city first. He helped him get a job as a painter, where he made $70 a day working for Luis Hernandez, who was also his landlord. At the end of the day, he went home to a dark, dingy basement apartment with no windows that he shared with his brother and his cousin, each paying $100 a month in rent. Access to their apartment was hidden behind the main stairs of the old three-story brick building. A small door led to narrow plywood steps that plunged downward into the dark underground cavern. The ceiling was low and exposed pipes lined the walls. Tucked into the corners were paint cans and supplies. The space was sparse but tidy. The living room was in the boiler room and contained a well-used loveseat covered in a sheet and a cheap TV he used to watch soccer with his few friends. They shared the kitchen and bathroom areas. On the wall hung family photos and religious items. There were two small bedrooms. Diego and his brother shared one, his cousin in the other. On the bedside table lay a receipt for $50, a money transfer Diego had sent back to his family in Ecuador just three days earlier. Diego worked hard. He still owed the smugglers $12,000. On Wednesday, November 1st, 2006, Diego, along with two others, were working in apartment 37. He was spackling the walls when he spotted Adrian arrive around 10 a.m. Her husband Andy had just dropped her off, and she headed upstairs to her apartment. Diego watched her silently coming up in the elevator and noticed her large black purse. That's when he decided to rob her. Adrian was petite, barely five feet tall. She let herself into her apartment and set down her purse. Diego quietly slipped in and slid his hand in to retrieve her wallet. She spotted him. He reached for her, and she screamed. He reacted without thinking. He had to silence her. He covered her nose and mouth with his hands. She desperately tried to fight him off. She hit him hard, twice in the face, embedding scratch marks on his nose. He held his hands firmly over her face until she passed out and fell to the floor. He panicked and looked around the apartment and spotted a sheet. He wound it around her small thin neck and choked her. He had to make it look like a suicide. He dragged her body to the bathroom and threw the sheet over the shower rod, stepped one foot onto the toilet and another on the edge of the tub. He hoisted her up and tied the sheet in a knot, her body hanging from the rod. Then he fled the apartment. Adrian was 40 years old. During the day, Andy hadn't been able to reach his wife and became concerned. At 5.30 that evening, he drove to her building and asked the doorman to accompany him to her apartment. The door wasn't locked. The two walked in, and there in the bathroom, they found Adrian. Her lifeless body still hung from the shower rod. They had been married only five years. Police arrived to a scene that appeared to be a suicide, but something didn't seem right. 
there were no obvious signs of trauma, no suicide note, and cash was missing from her wallet. On the toilet seat and on the edge of the bathtub, they saw a distinctive shoe print. The day after Adrian's death, the media in New York reported that an indie film star was found dead in her Manhattan apartment in an apparent suicide. Adrian's family were shocked by her death. They knew the vivacious and gutsy New Yorker would never have killed herself. She had no reason to. They knew it was murder. While Shelley's family waited for the medical examiner to complete Adrian's autopsy and determine her cause of death, they hired a forensic pathologist to perform a second autopsy. On Sunday, hundreds of people attended a memorial service for Adrian while police continued their investigation. Detectives went to Shelley's apartment to collect her computer and wallet. They stopped by apartment number 37. The door was open. On the floor, they noticed sheets of dusty construction paper, and on that paper, they spotted a shoe print, a print that matched the one in Adrian's bathroom. Detectives talked to the workers and learned about Diego. The next morning, police found him at his dismal apartment and took him to the 6th Precinct Station House in Manhattan for questioning. For 30 minutes, he was like ice, solid and cold, and denied knowing anything. But faced with the shoe print evidence, his icy facade cracked, ever so slightly, showing his brittleness. But would he tell them the truth? Nope. He claimed that Adrian was annoyed with the hammering noise coming from the workers and walked downstairs to apartment 37 to complain. Diego was standing on a ladder spackling and she spotted him first. Diego spoke mostly Spanish and very little English and said Adrian raised her finger to her mouth and told him to shush. This angered him and he yelled at her in Spanish to get out. He climbed down from the ladder, picked up a hammer and hit the floor with it. Then again, he told her to leave. He wasn't much taller than Adrian, but he shoved her out the door, hitting her as he did. Then he closed it, but Adrian didn't leave. Instead, she opened the door, slapped him across the face, and told him she was going to call the police. Then she turned and stormed away. Diego followed her, pleading with her not to call the police. He desperately didn't want to be deported. He followed her up the stairs. She yelled at him to leave and called him a son of a bitch. His anger flashed and his temper exploded. He punched her and she fell to the floor in the hallway. They fought in the doorway, then the fight moved into her apartment. He overpowered her and pushed her. She fell hitting her head on the computer table on the way down. Adrian was unconscious. He knelt down and put his head to her chest, but he could not hear her breathing. She was dead. He panicked and dragged her limp body into her apartment, then spotted a bedsheet. He wrapped it around her neck, dragged her into the bathroom, reached up and draped the sheet over the shower rod, and hoisted her body up to make it appear like she had committed suicide. He declared, I was having a bad day. I didn't mean to kill her, but I did kill her. 
Diego was charged with second-degree murder and held without bail. Police suspected that in addition to robbing her, sexual assault may have been his motive as well, but with the sudden turn of events, he fled and tried to cover his tracks, tracks that led police right to him. The Journal News reported that the prosecutor said there were no signs of serious trauma and that this woman did not die from a strike to the head, and the medical examiner concluded that she had died from compression to her neck when she was hung. Diego's lawyer requested he be placed on suicide watch, and he was sent to Bellevue Hospital for psychiatric observation. The day after his arrest, Immigration and Customs Enforcement descended on the Drury apartment building at 6 a.m. and hauled away several illegal immigrants, including his cousin, and those in the apartment building next door, also owned by his boss. Diego still owed the smugglers for his trip to America, a debt that his cousin took over responsibility for. On December 13, six weeks after her murder, Diego appeared in criminal court and pled not guilty. Two weeks later, in January 2007, Adrian's husband Andy attended her film, Waitress, when it premiered at the Sundance Festival in Utah. Her film was a success and sold at the festival for $4 million. She would have been proud, but perhaps the most poignant moment was at the end of the film that featured her daughter Sophie walking down a dirt road with her mother, played by Carrie Russell. Vowing to mark her legacy, Andy created the Adrian Shelley Foundation to provide grants and scholarships to women filmmakers, women like herself who had a passion, a vision, and a drive to tell a story. In an ironic twist, after appearing on an episode of Law & Order, she would become inspiration for a fictionalized episode based on her murder called The Melting Pot. Diego was moved to the notorious Rikers Island while waiting for his trial. He was haunted by the memories of their fatal encounter. He took a staple and slashed at his wrist in a suicide attempt. He did not know Adrian was an actor and director, but discovered this through the media while he sat in a cell, a mere 12 miles from where he'd taken her life. He sat alone in misery and did not want his brother to visit. He simply couldn't face him. On Valentine's Day in 2008, Diego's trial began in a Manhattan courtroom. The Daily News reported that he admitted to stealing cash from Adrian's purse and that she had caught him. Without emotion, he quietly pled guilty to manslaughter. Then through an interpreter, he asked for forgiveness from her family. Shelley's brother laughed in anger as her mother screamed out, No. The judge replied, I doubt that she'll get that, sir. In court a month later for her sentencing, Adrian's husband lashed out at Diego. He stared him down and declared, No sentence will be enough for you. You deserve the same fate you handed Adrian. I want you to suffer like she suffered. You are nothing more than a cold-blooded killer, a murderous beast. You took the life of a beautiful, loving woman who, unlike you, had so much to give to society. The judge sentenced Diego to 25 years in prison 
with no parole and no ability to appeal. He will be deported once he has served his time. And this time, he did not ask for the family's forgiveness, but stated through an interpreter, If there were a death penalty, I would take it. That is what I deserve. Diego will be released from prison when he is 44 years old. Adrian left behind a young daughter who didn't get the chance to know her mother. Perhaps she will catch a glimpse of her talent that lives on in her films. She left behind a half a dozen unfinished scripts that her husband is working on completing. One of her scripts was made into the film Serious Moonlight and featured Meg Ryan and Timothy Hutton was released in 2009. And her first indie film waitress, it has earned more than $19 million. She would have been so very happy, so very proud. In Abingdon Square Park, across from her apartment building, the small, triangle-shaped park is bordered by three streets. Within its welcoming, black-iron fence sits a memorial garden dedicated to Adrian. Amongst the trees and flowers, a bronze plaque faces her apartment. It is engraved with the words, Dedicated in loving memory of actor, writer, and filmmaker Adrian Shelley, a beautiful soul whose love, spirit, and humor will be with us forever. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Firefighter Lieutenant William Walker. Shot four times on a dark November night, Will's squad at the fire hall were first on the scene and recognized him. Iloma planned his murder to collect the life insurance, but in an ironic twist, she wouldn't receive a penny. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or MurderIn20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.